0: you will all please open in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8. We are continuing our series through Romans, and this morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. And as you open there, I want to ask you a question. Where do you find comfort in suffering? Or maybe... If you have a friend who is suffering, how do you encourage someone who is suffering? Where can comfort and encouragement be found in the sufferings of this world? And to bring true encouragement, to bring true help and comfort to someone who is suffering, it really is an art. You can be good at it, and you can also be bad at it. Mere words often do not do the trick. If someone is very downcast and sad and depressed, sometimes it's not so helpful to say, Well, I hope you feel better. Or, Why don't you cheer up? Don't be sad. That's great, but yeah, of course I don't want to be sad. Of course I want to cheer up. What but but I need something more than just words. I need something real. I need something helpful. Uh, Another unhelpful thing would be sometimes just to to try to jump in and figure out what's going wrong and and just try to fix it and figure out what the problem is. How can we make this right? Uh, and, And even worse, if you start accusing your suffering friend of all the ways that they've sinned against God, and maybe that's why your suffering is here. Isn't that what Job's friends did? Job's friends offered their best comfort when they were sitting silent with him. For seven days. But the minute they opened their mouths and started trying to figure out what was going on, and, and oh, it's because you're not honoring God, oh, it's because you're being prideful, you've done some sin, otherwise you wouldn't be suffering. Is that helpful for a suffering person? That's not true help. And I want to say that every Christian needs true comfort. It's something that we all need because suffering. Is a reality in, in life, in every person's life. It's universal. There's no person who goes through life without some amount of suffering. And I don't think I really have to explain that to you, but ha- have you not experienced sadness at times? Have you not felt depressed about something or just been hurting over something? Are you not familiar with the feeling of anxiety? Do you not know the feeling of tears in your eyes? Do you not have frustration? In life, Or the pain of sickness, either in yourself or someone that you love. Our lives are characterized by this kind of physical suffering. And everyone suffers from this kind of suffering that I've just laid out. But not only that, if you're a Christian, there is another kind of frustration that, that clings to us. And that is our, our deep frustration and annoyance with the sin that still clings to us. You who have a deep desire to honor Christ, does it not hurt when you sin against him and when you dishonor your savior and when you love him and you want to be pure before him, but every day you fall into sin and dishonor his name. And so Christians are frustrated with this and it's just the result of a fallen world. It's the result of sin. All suffering is a result of sin. Ultimately, either your own personal sin or just the curse of sin on this world, the curse that sin has brought on this world. And so every Christian needs true comfort because every Christian experiences this suffering. And as I say that, you might notice that I'm talking about Christians because while suffering is a reality for every person, whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, the truth is that there is only true comfort for believers. It's the only place that you can find true comfort is in Christ and so if you are not a believer, as you're listening to what God's word says about the comfort that believers find, you need to be thinking about how this is only available to those who trust in Christ with their whole life, to those who believe in the name of his son. They, they confess with their mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe with their heart that God raised him from the dead. That is who gets to receive true comfort in suffering. And so... True comfort is exactly what God is giving us through his word this morning. True comfort in the sufferings of this life. and But how did we really get to this point in Romans? We're in Romans chapter 8, and Romans chapter 8, uh, Pastor Josh has summarized for us as certainty for sinners, and I think that is a great summary of what this chapter is about. Uh, because as we go through the book of Romans, we see in chapter 3 that all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one who is not under sin. Everyone has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone deserves God's wrath because of sin. The wages of sin is death. And then we see the glorious truth in chapter five, that that God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so that brings justification. We can be right before God. And so there's this glorious truth that although all are under sin, for those who believe in Christ, he has died and given justification, pronounced the announcement of justification on all who believe in Christ, and yet... There is still the struggle against sin that believers fight every day. And, and that's what we see in chapter 7, where Paul is struggling and he says, I, I do the things that I don't want to do. I, I practice the very things that I hate. And what I want to do, I don't, I don't do. And he asks this piercing question in Romans 7.24, uh, where he makes this, explanation, this exclamation, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And so there is the great news of the gospel, and yet there is still the frustration with sin indwelling our flesh. And so who will deliver us? How will we have deliverance from this? The answer is chapter 8, by the work of the Holy Spirit. By the work of the Holy Spirit, those who believe in Christ can have victory over sin. That's the amazing message of Romans chapter 8. The Holy Spirit, we've seen his present work in the first part of the chapter. In verses 1 through 17, we've seen that by the power of the Spirit, believers are set free from their sin. We already know that we are justified. There's no condemnation for those who trust in Christ. But the Holy Spirit has set you free from sin and death. And the Holy Spirit indwells you if you are a believer. He lives within you and he helps you. He sanctifies you. He makes you holy before the Lord. He leads you in the right way. As many as are being led by the Spirit of God, these are called sons of God. And he witnesses within you, right? If you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, That is the spirit testifying with our spirit that we are children of God. And not only that, he gives us life in our mortal bodies so that even though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. So you can still live in a righteous way and please your master whom you love. This is all the work of the spirit. And it culminates in the end of this present work in verses 16 and 17, where we're seeing verse 16, that the same spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That is amazing truth. Do you realize that the same things, the same inheritance that Christ, the perfect son of God deserves in heaven, that he shares those same inheritance With you, if you are a believer in him, co-heirs with Christ. But then we see this qualifier at the end of 17, if indeed, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we also may be glorified with him. And so the topic of suffering is introduced, which has not been touched up to this point. And... And so the question is, why, why are we talking about suffering here? Why, why does Paul bring that in? We had just this glorious train of, if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. And he's talking about how we're going to be glorified. And then he brings suffering into the mix. How, how is that? Isn't he trying to encourage us? Well, it is because he cannot mention glorification. Glorification. Without mentioning suffering. You see, in the Bible, suffering and glory are always seen right next to each other because there is no such thing in Scripture as glory that comes without suffering first. No such thing as glory without suffering first. It is the same for every believer. Every believer who will be glorified will experience suffering prior to that. And that is because of Christ himself, who was not glorified before humbling himself to come to this earth and suffer and die at the hands of guilty sinners so that he might raise again, that he might then be glorified and glorify with himself those who have trusted in him. And we see that in Luke 24. Luke 24. Do you remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus and they're talking with each other and they're talking about how, how the Messiah, who they thought that was the Messiah, he died and what, what has gone wrong? What has happened? We thought he was supposed to come and be our King. You see the Jews, the people at this time didn't understand this concept of suffering before glory but they should have because it was in the prophets. We just heard from Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant, that he was crushed for our iniquities, pierced for our transgressions. That was always the plan. And so when Jesus meets those disciples on Emmaus, on the road to Emmaus, he reminds them of that. In Luke 24, 26, he says, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then to enter into his glory? And so suffering will always precede glory. It was for Christ and it is for the Christian. And and that is another reason why we need comfort because suffering is sure. And so we've taken up this concept of suffering. Uh, And what is this suffering that that Paul has mentioned here? Well, I think it comes from two basic places. There's suffering because of sin and there's suffering because of righteousness Okay, they're suffering because of sin and they're suffering because of righteousness. What I talked about in my introduction was this whole idea of how we are all at times in suffering, in pain, in harm. There is sickness, there is disease, there are injuries, there is just sadness and and broken relationships and things like this that are part of suffering that is due because of sin. Because of sin, there is death. And so there is that kind of suffering. But for the Christian, interestingly, there is also suffering because of righteousness. When you want to live for Christ in this fallen world, you will experience persecution at the hands of those who hate Christ because the world is opposed to Christ. And if Christ is not here in this world for them to afflict, they will affi- afflict you because you love him and because he loves you. And so we will suffer in this world, one, just because of the nature of sin, because we are sinful, because there's the curse of sin on this world, and two, because we live for Christ, because we want to live righteously. And what Paul wants to do in the passage that we're learning from this morning is to give us true comfort, even though we know that's a reality, even though we know that's a definite reality, we can find true comfort in God's word. And the main idea of this passage is that the certainty of glory is our consolation in suffering. The certainty of glory to come is our consolation in suffering now. That's what Paul wants to show us here. And so with that, uh, we're going to read the passage with that main point in mind, and, and we'll get into explaining it a little bit. So let's read Romans eight, eighteen through 25. Follow along with me. Verse 18. For I consider... That the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation eagerly waits for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, we ourselves also groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we were saved. but hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes in what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. And so what is our hope? What is our consolation in suffering? It is the certainty of the glory to be revealed to us. And as we look at this, I want to unfold it for you in three main points. Uh, First, we're going to look at the bold claim. Sorry, one bold claim, two perfect proofs, and the hope that results. Okay, one bold claim, two perfect proofs, and the hope that results. So first, let's see this one bold claim, verse 18. And Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed for us. And you might say, well, that's a nice thought. Paul's saying, I consider, I think this way. This is how I'm thinking about it. This is how I kind of comfort myself. You might say, that's great for you. That's really good that you can have that kind of optimistic attitude. Uh, it's really nice that you can have this sort of silver lining outlook, uh, but, but that might not work for me. You know, I, I don't understand how or what glory is or how that can be a comfort in this kind of suffering. Why is Paul saying, I consider? Why doesn't he say, you should consider? He says, I consider because someone might say, well, Paul, you don't understand my suffering. You don't understand what it's like to lose a loved one. You don't know what it's like to have chronic illness and pain day after day. You don't know what it's like to have people hate me every day just because I want to live for Christ. And maybe you would say, I, Paul, you don't know what it's like. I, I am so sinful. Christ cannot look favorably upon me because my sin would separate me. My sin is too vile, too gross. I don't deserve forgiveness. And to those people, Paul would say, you're totally wrong. I know exactly what that's like. Look at the person who says, I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. Was Paul familiar with suffering? Listen to 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul talks about the suffering that he has gone through. Listen to this. Listen to his life. Anyone who would say that your suffering is not understood, not understood by Paul, not understood by others, not understood by God. Listen to Paul's life. He says in 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23, he speaks of labors, imprisonments, beatings without number, in frequent danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city dangers in the desolate places, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brothers. I have been in labor and hardship, in many sleepless nights, in starvation and thirst, often hungry, in cold, and without enough clothing. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Was Paul a person who did not know suffering? And was he a person that didn't understand the nature of sin? Is he not the same one who exclaimed, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Paul knows suffering. Paul knows the struggle with sin. And Paul knows the solution, the hope that is offered to people who know that kind of suffering. And so no matter what your kind of suffering is, you can find hope in what Paul is about to explain here. And let's think about it together. What What does he say? I consider. Now it's important that he says, I. You know that this is the guy who said that. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And notice what he's saying here. He's using the analogy of a balance, you know, to to weigh the difference between two things. He's saying, I consider the word for considering is the idea of having a couple of options before you. And you're kind of counting the benefits and costs of each to try to decide which one you should pick. Maybe you're going to the store deciding between two products that are the same thing, two different brands. So, What are the benefits of each? What's the price you're weighing the the differences there. And he doesn't say, you know, suffering is pretty bad right now, but that glory that's going to be revealed, that'll really set it into balance. He doesn't say that, nor does he say, you know, that suffering is really heavy right now, but that glory that's to be revealed, that's so much heavier. And it's going to, it's going to tip the balance the other way. No, this glory that's revealed will break the balance because it's not even worthy to be compared, not worthy to be compared. You can't even compare the two suffering and glory while always found next to each other in scripture can never be compared. They can only be contrasted. You can only see the vast difference between them because one is temporal and one is eternal. Suffering, even if you learn to live to be a hundred years old, your suffering is only going to be a hundred years. You can't even fathom the length of eternity. And for the Christian, eternity is characterized by glory. And so, truly, there is no comparison. Now hope you see that this bold claim that Paul made at first, it's a very valid claim. If you will be glorified, that means to have a resurrection body that is free from sin, free from pain, ability to honor Christ with your life. Always, perfectly worshiping him forever in a glorified state, in his presence. No more sin, no more pain. No more trouble, trial, hardship, mocking. It's all done away with in the glory of Christ for eternity. That's worth it in this life for us to commit ourselves to Christ, then, is it not? And so it's not worthy, this, these sufferings, your pains, your hardships, to be compared with the glory that will be revealed. Well, what is this glory? What does it mean that this glory is going to be revealed? Well, do you remember a few verses earlier that if we are sons of God, then we are heirs of God, that we are fellow heirs with Christ? There can be no closer tie between you and Christ if you are a son of God, if you are a fellow heir with him. And that means that the same glory that Christ will shine in will be the same glory that shines about you and through you and in you. Colossians 3, 4 says this. It says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So Christ's glory will be your glory. What does that glory look like? Well, in Mark 9, we learn about the transfiguration. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. This is verses 2 and 3. He brought them up on a high mountain alone by themselves. And what happened? What happened? He was transfigured before them and his garments were shining intensely white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Matthew tells us in Matthew 17 too, that his garments became white as light. Listen to the account of Christ's glory in Matthew 24, 29 through 31. This is talking about the end times immediately, because that's when Christ is glorified, when he comes back at his second coming. That's what we're talking about here. That's when he's glorified. That's when you're glorified. That's what we're talking about. Matthew 24, 29 through 31, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. He's coming back in glory and he's gathering up those who have trusted in him to glorify them with himself. Revelation 1, John sees Jesus in his glory. I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. And his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And having his right, in his right hand the seven stars and a sharp two-edged sword which comes out of his mouth. And his face was like the sun shining in its power. This is the glorified Christ. This is Jesus at his second coming in his full glory. And you might remember that Isaiah saw this in Isaiah 6. He saw Jesus in his glory. Remember, and the angels were saying, holy, holy, holy. And what happened? What what was Isaiah's reaction? He could not bear it. He said, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. What did Peter say when he saw Christ in transfiguration? He he didn't know what to say. He said, maybe we should start building some tabernacles. We got to do something. I don't know. He was dumbfounded by Christ's glory. What did John do when he saw Christ's glory? He fell on his face like a dead man. In our mortal bodies now, we cannot bear Christ's glory if we are truly to be glorified with him, that means that Christ is going to give us glorified bodies, resurrected bodies that can handle that kind of glory that will even shine in the same way. Do we know what that's going to look like? Not really. First John 3.2, John tells us, beloved, we now are children of God, and it has not been revealed yet what we will be. But we know that when He is revealed, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but it's going to be glorious. It's going to far outweigh anything that ever characterized this life. So much better. Do you see how it's not worthy to be compared with sufferings? Not worthy to be compared. And so that is the bold claim of Paul, that that we are going to be glorified with Christ, together with him, receive glorified bodies, and be forever in his presence to worship him. And and he sums it up by saying this, 2 Corinthians 4.17, and I want you to see this for yourselves. Uh, We'll put it up on the screen, 2 Corinthians 4.17, What is suffering in light of this glory? Paul says, for our momentary light affliction is working out for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is a kind of glory that makes our sufferings easy, light, just because of the vastness of the glory. Our minds can't even comprehend it. We need to ask the Lord to help us understand to a deeper level what this even means, how glorified, how beautiful this is. We don't know what we're going to look like. We'll be like Christ, John says. That is hopeful for us, though. And so we've seen one bold claim. But what if we're asking, okay, that's great. That looks awesome. But how do I know for sure that that's actually going to happen? How do I know that that that's really in store? That would be awesome if it was, but is it just a good dream? Is it just a, a helpful hope or is it really going to happen? And that's why Paul gives us two perfect proofs, two perfect proofs for why this must take place. And the first one is this, the creation is groaning. The creation is groaning. Look with me. At verse 19 of our passage. For the anxious longing of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The anxious longing of the creation. We're talking about this earth. We're talking about uh, this earth and everything that's on it. All of the plants, trees, animals, rivers, streams, the, the clouds of the sky, the sun. These things the anxious longing of the creation. And I want to point out this word, uh, anxious longing. It's one word in Greek and and it, It's actually a compound word. It's very picturesque. It's talking about craning the neck. It's it's talking about an outstretched head, which is a really interesting picture. Paul is saying that the creation itself is craning its neck. It's standing up on tiptoe to try to see what's going to come, to try to see, to look forward expectantly to this glory that will be revealed in the sons of God. It's looking for men to be glorified with Christ. It desires that craning forward for it, stretching out the neck. And the, it, the eager waiting, eagerly waits, that's like, it can't come soon enough. I can't wait. It's so good. It's so beautiful. Why does the creation want this? By the way, the creation is personified here. The creation isn't, it doesn't actually think about anything. And yet, Paul uses it to show, like, look, if an inanimate earth can long for glory, can't we, his people, and so the creation is longing for this. Why? Well, Christ's second coming and thus the glorification of the saints with him is the first step of new creation that God will bring about for the whole creation, right? It's the first thing that's gonna happen. You don't have the rest of new creation, the new heavens and the new earth where all things are made right without man first being glorified. It's like you can't have a hockey game without the first drop of the puck. If, if the puck never drops there's not going to be a hockey game. And so people who go to a hockey game eagerly wait for the first drop of the puck because they know that that's when the game's going to start. It's a weak analogy, but it describes how creation looks forward to the glorification of the sons of God. Because when that happens, you know, that everything is about to go down, everything that Revelation talks about, this whole culmination of God's plan with ending up with the new heavens and the new earth, that's started, that's going to happen, that's, that's for sure going to take place. And look at verse 20. Why does the creation need to look forward to this? Isn't it good enough now? No. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. What does this mean? Futility uselessness. It means that it's not fulfilling its intended purpose. And this is really important for us to understand. This is because of the curse of sin. Creation is not what it's supposed to be. And I want to explain it to you a little bit because we can think, well, isn't creation pretty great? You know, there's beautiful sunsets. There's awesome lakes and mountains to look at. uh, Waterfalls, the animals, fun to watch. I I lived in Jackson Hole, Wyoming there's literally moose and bison and deer just roaming about, like, in my backyard. It's amazing. Creation is amazing. And yet, that's all that unbelievers are able to see. But believers realize that that's not what it's meant to be. It's, it's amazing now because of God's grace, but it's not even close to the glory that it is supposed to have. It's cursed. Genesis three seventeen. And 18, curse is the ground because of you, God says to Adam. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You see, it didn't used to be hard for the ground to produce good things. It came up freely. Everything blossomed, and guess what? It stayed alive. It stayed alive. Now grass withers, now flowers fade, now animals die. That's not the way creation is supposed to be. It's under a curse because God subjected it under this curse to make it hope for glory. And so it looks forward to when humanity will be glorified. That is the humanity that has subjected themselves to Christ and worship him. They will be glorified and creation cranes for that moment. But it says it's in hope. It was subjected in hope, right? That the creation itself also would be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I mentioned that things wither and fade corruption is the idea of rotting of falling apart of dying do you know that things smell bad now there are things in creation that smell bad that doesn't happen if there's no rotting and death in a new creation i'll wager to say that that nothing smells bad everything would smell good because it's only life nothing dies nothing withers That's what creation longs for. That was what it was created for when God created everything and said, behold, it is very good. He wasn't talking about death and withering and rotting. He was talking about a truly good creation that is now cursed, that is now craning forward to that moment when the sons of God will be revealed, when it will be set free, right? Into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation will be free when a glorified man rule over it as God always intended. And that's what the creation itself, this personified creation, truly desires. And this is not just something that's hypothetical. Paul says this is something that we can see, that we know about, right? Look at verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. What is this? What is this that we know? What, are the, what is this groaning? What is this labor pains, these pains of childbirth? I think what what Paul is telling us is that we can see that creation is not renewed. We can see that creation is not as it should be right now, even by the seasons, by the seasons. That's interesting, isn't it? Well, think about it. What happens every season? In spring, there's life, isn't there? There's new life, there's new flowers, there's new grass, new trees, animals are giving birth, all kinds of new life. And then summer hits, And the heat begins to scorch the grass. And things begin to dry out. And as fall comes around, leaves that were once lush and green become brown and crispy and dead. And winter comes and snow covers everything. And animals must go into hiding, into hibernation. They can't live like this in this cold. And so... Creation groans and it it tries to to, to bring about new birth. It has labor pains, so to speak, because it's trying to bring about, when a woman has labor pains, that means a baby is coming. New life is coming. It's a joyful thing. And so creation has that same kind of pain as spring comes around again and there's new life and it's amazing and it looks like it's going to be good, but then what happens? The same cycle over and over again. Dryness, death. And so... That's why Paul says that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together, what? Until now. Usually, labor pains end in great joy and pleasure as a mother enjoys her new baby. For creation, the same cycle has been happening over and over and over again since the curse. New life just leads to more death. And so creation groans and suffers until this time. And Paul says, we know that. You can see this. You can see it for yourself. You know that this is true. It's not as it should be. And so that's, a, that's one of the proofs. But why, why is that a proof that glory is coming? Well, it's because even an inanimate creation knows that something better is promised. Because God has promised not to leave creation this way. At the same time that he gave the curse, he gave a promise, right? The seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. There will be final victory. There will be glorification in the end. Man will be redeemed, and that means creation will be made new. Creation remembers the promises of God. Do you? And so it will be renewed, and and we can see it yearning for that. We can experience it around us. And so we know by the proof of creation around us, external to us, that that hope of glory is sure. But there are two proofs, aren't there? Because Paul says in verse 23, not only this, not only this, what else do you have for us, Paul? Not only this, but we ourselves also, having the first fruit of the spirit, we ourselves also grown within ourselves. And now there's something really important that we need to notice here that Paul could have just said, not only this, but we ourselves also grown. Couldn't he? But what does he put in between those statements? He says, not only this, but we ourselves also having the first fruit of the Spirit. This whole chapter has been about the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit that causes us to groan for something greater. An unbeliever does not have this kind of groaning. An unsaved person cannot have this hope for glory. They just can't. This groaning is good for believers because it reminds us that things are not right now and we need to look forward to the future. We need to look forward to future glory. Unbelievers do not have that hope. They only have destruction to look forward to because of their sin against God and their their refusal to repent before the gracious offer that God extends through Christ but we having the first fruit of the spirit grown for that glory what does it mean first fruits well first fruits it's a harvest analogy in israel Everything was based on agriculture. There were crops, and you would have a time of sowing, and then you'd have a time of reaping. And at the time of reaping, things would start to sprout. You would have the the new crops, the first fruits of the crop. And those first fruits were a guarantee. They were a guarantee. They were the hopeful thing. You, You saw those, and you knew the rest of the harvest was about to come. And so, first fruits is a promise. It's a guarantee even in Israel the people of Israel were required by God to give up the first fruits of their harvest before the Lord as a sacrifice. Why? Because they're they're expressing their trust in him that he will bring it the rest of the way. That you can trust him with the first fruits of your produce and he is going to bless you with the rest of the harvest as it comes. And so first fruits means promise it means guarantee and that's who the spirit is for us. That's who the spirit is within us. I want you to see a couple cross references. In 2 Corinthians 1, 1 verses 21 through 22, says this, and we have this for you to look at on the screen, too. Now, he who establishes you in Christ and anointed us is God. God is the one who establishes us in Christ. What did he also do in verse 22? He also sealed us and gave us the pledge of the Spirit in our hearts. If you have the spirit, you know that you have the glory in the future. Ephesians 1.13 also. In him, you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You see, this is predicated on believing the gospel. You have to believe the gospel to have this truth. But you, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, what? You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. We have a promise. That is the Holy Spirit dwelling in us that God will bring the rest to completion. He will glorify us as he's promised. He will make creation new again. The Holy Spirit of promise. And so not only this, but we ourselves also, verse 23, having the first fruit, the promise of the Spirit, the comfort that that brings. What do we do then? We groan within ourselves. We groan within ourselves. And that is an expression. That is a knowledge and understanding that, that the creation is not right right now, that we are not who we should be right now. Our bodies are sinful bodies. And we look forward to having this glory in the future. But what is it exactly that we look forward to? What, what is the substance of that, that we get to anticipate? Well, look at what it is. We eagerly wait, right having the first fruits of the spirit, we groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, adoption of sons as sons didn't didn 't Paul already say isn 't that what we already have don 't we already have the adoption as sons? Look that you have not received the spirit of slavery again, leading to fear right Romans eight verse uh, fifteen verse fifteen, and then but you have received the spirit of the adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So we we have received the spirit of adoption already. What does it mean that adoption is still yet coming? Well, I can compare it to a young boy at an orphanage and and he so badly wants to be adopted by good parents. And the news comes to him that, oh, a a perfect father has come to, to adopt you and he wants to adopt you, and he has all of the means necessary to provide for you. He is the most loving man that can be found in this area. He is going to take good care of you. He has a son whom he loves already, but he wants to adopt you as well and give you the same kind of inheritance. The paperwork is all signed. The deal has been done. He's coming tomorrow to take you home. And so this orphan is now adopted, but he has to wait for tomorrow to be taken home. But but there's a promise there, right? Everything's been done. Everything's set away. He just has to wait. He just has to eagerly wait. Wait with anticipation. Wait with hope. It's going to happen. That's us with the Holy Spirit of promise. We know that's coming. God has adopted us as his son. And we get to be fellow heirs with Christ, his beloved Son with whom he is well-pleased. Same inheritance, same glory, it's coming. And we look forward to that. What it, He also says the redemption of our body. And that's talking about the resurrection. Your body is sinful right now. It is a fleshly body, but you will receive a glorified and new body. Listen to Philippians 3, verses 20 through 21. Because we're not made for, for this world, we're made for a new creation. Our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what will he do? He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by his working through which he is able to even subject all things to himself. Do you remember all creation groaning? Do you remember that all things look forward to Christ coming again? He has the power to do this. He has been glorified. He has come to earth. He's suffered like he must suffer in order to redeem his people. He has died at the hands of sinners by God's plan. He is raised from the dead after three days, according to God's plan, showing and validating his ministry, showing that everything he claimed to be as the son of God is true. He has all power. He has the authority to lay his life down and to take it up again. He has ascended into heaven. He now has a glorified body and yours is coming soon you will be just like him when you see him as he is and so we've seen that paul's made this claim that our sufferings now do you remember we were talking about sufferings isn't it easy to forget when we focus on glory our sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to come we've seen these two perfect proofs that creation is groaning looking forward to the glory and we're groaning looking forward to gro- to glory because of the spirit and finally I want to show you the hope that results from this. The hope that results in verses 24 and 25. Paul says, for in hope we were saved. In hope we were saved. The moment you were saved, when you believed in the gospel of Christ, Christ didn't save us just to keep going about our lives, and now we have this declaration of righteousness, and that's awesome, but and we're just going to keep living our lives now? No, it's in hope. It's in hope for something greater to come, hope for the future, because we know that we still have sinful bodies. We know that we still live on a cursed creation. And so we're saved, and that places hope in our hearts. In hope, you are saved. Hope for something greater. Hope for glory in the future. And it's just that. It's in the future. You can't see it now, can you? You just have to trust in God that it's there. But that's just the nature of hope, isn't it? And Paul says this. Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he already sees? It's like a person walking around outside on a sunny day saying, I hope it's sunny today. You see it's sunny today. You don't need to hope for that. You need to hope for something in the future. And Christian hope, by the way, biblical hope, it's sure confidence. Sure confidence confidence. It's not wondering if it's going to rain or be sunny in the coming days. It's not wondering if your exam is going to go well. I hope my exam, I hope I get a good grade. No, this is sure confidence. If we hope for glory, we know that that is what Christ has laid up for us in heaven. That we know that that is what we will receive when he returns. This is not just death when you're taken to heaven into Christ's presence. This is resurrection. This is is when you receive a glorified body to live on a glorified world and the earth is full of his glory. And so what should we do? If then we're, we have this hope, if we hope, verse 25, in what we do not see, what's the reaction? What what comes of it? With perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. With perseverance, we eagerly wait wait are you eagerly waiting for christ's return are you saying with the apostle john oh come lord jesus come quickly are you longing for this or are you complacent with how things are now we need to be groaning toward the glory that is revealed In the future, we need to be anxiously longing, stretching out our heads to see what Christ is going to do. We know it's going to happen. We need to wait eagerly like that's true. If that's true and you're a Christian and you believe that, shouldn't that be evident in your life? Shouldn't people see how much you are looking forward to that day? If that's truly the best thing that can ever happen to you, if that's the best thing that can happen for the name of Christ, that that he is glorified by those who surround his throne in glory, worshiping him for his namesake, he has done all of this. By his power, he has accomplished all of this because God has placed him as King of kings, Lord of lords. He has the name above every other name. All creation will be subjected under his feet for his glory. It is for his glory that we also are glorified. And because you know God will do everything possible to accomplish what he wants for his name, for his own glory, and part of that in- includes you being glorified, you know he'll glorify you. because for his name's sake. And it's also the best for you. And so with perseverance, that's the key word for the suffering. When suffering accompanies your life. When you are sick or someone you knows is sick. When you are mocked or made fun of for following Christ. When you are struggling in your sin. Remember the glory that is revealed. Consider with Paul. Remember the balance. There's, there's no comparison to the glory that is to come. That should be your hope. And I want to talk to you who are not believers in Christ. Because you can't have this hope. If you have not surrendered your life to Christ, remember from Matthew 24, what Christ's coming will look like. Immediately after the tribulation, Of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and the sign of the son of man, Christ is coming back. The sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why? Because they are sinners and they deserve judgment and they've seen that judgment day is here and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky in power and great glory. For the unbeliever, this is terrifying. This is cause for mourning because this is the time when Christ will repay all who continually sin against him. But look at what happens to those who trust in him. He'll send his angels with a great trumpet and they'll gather together his elect from the four winds from one of the sky to the other. They'll be gathered up with Christ. They'll have this hope of glory forever only for those who trust in Christ, though only for his elect. But do you know that your sin is not so vile that you are not able to accept Christ's free offer of gracious forgiveness for your sin? Are you suffering even as an unbeliever? Because Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Literally, I will rest you It's a free offer, and those who come to Christ, no one who comes to Christ will be cast out. You can repent of your sin even now and come to him and be saved in hope and realize that you have an inheritance with the Son of God as his fellow heir and look forward to this glory. Isn't that beautiful? Will you glorify Christ by giving your life to him, by surrendering to his rule? By, and then you get the great joy of looking forward to this glory as well. How, are you, how, do you, how will you be saved? Romans 10, we saw it this morning. Verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him, from the dead, you will be saved. And you will be able to look forward to this glory to be revealed when Christ comes again. That is amazing. We need to remember that, those of us who are Christians. That's amazing news. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. We all need to look forward to this glory. Let's thank the Lord for, for this hope. Our Father in heaven, how amazing. How amazing. Lord, Lord, you have glorified your son and you will glorify those who believe in him. Father, may all the glory go to your great name because of this. God, it is nothing that we have done. There's nothing that we have done to affect this salvation. There's nothing that we have done to be able to anticipate this glory. We only have sinned It is because of our sin that creation groans, that it is cursed. It is because of our sin that we suffer now. And it is because of the work of Christ that we can expect glory in the future. And Lord, all of these things, because they are your good pleasure, they are your word, they bring glory to your name. And that is what we truly want. We want you to be glorified. Lord, I pray for those of us who are Christians that we would have this great hope that it would cause us to forget our sufferings because of this glory. I pray for those, Lord, who don't know you they would come to know you, that they would accept Christ's free offer of salvation, that they too might be able to glorify with us the Son of God seated on his throne in all his power. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your Son. May we eagerly wait for his return. And we pray in his name. Amen.